So we're continuing in our look at the gospel. This is our gospel focus. This is our second week uh, of really digging into the gospel, um, reminding ourselves that the gospel is what we do all the time. The difference is, is we're just even more focused on it now. And so today, if you're not already there, you can go ahead and turn to Hebrews 4. We're going to be digging into uh, this passage. Um, we're kind of hopping around over the next few weeks. Um, and really the goal is that each of these passages are going to, each of these sermons are going to build on each other. And so what's going to happen is today we're going to see the next step that we talked about last week in how we, we get the gospel into our lives more. So this, this sermon today is going to spend about half the sermon on the passage, well maybe more like two-thirds, and then one-third is going to be the real practical how we do it. Um, and it's not going to be my words of practicality, it's going to be from God's word of how we do what we need to do with the gospel once we get it, once we apprehend it. And so that's what our goal is for this. And again, we're not going to complete it today. We're going to continue on. And, you know, in about six more weeks, we'll have the complete picture of what to do. Because the gospel is not just for us individually, but it's for us corporately as an entire church. As a part of this, many of you are reading that green little book that we got you, The Gospel by Ray Ortland. If you do not have one, feel free to go on our website, um, and if you do uh, newlifeinw.com slash gospel, there's a place to, uh, to order one, ask for one, or you come see me afterwards and I'll get you one. There's also study guides and there are all sorts of other things we're doing along with that. So if you're doing that, you're getting the gospel over here, and we're talking about gospel in life groups, and now we're doing gospel right here. So it's going to be this fully everything gospel focused. So for me, this is a very, this is a very personal thing. I grew up in the church. Uh, when I was about between five and six years old, uh, I prayed on the floor in my sister's bedroom with my mom and sister after we got done reading the Bible to ask Jesus into my heart. I made a profession of faith. I was baptized by my grandfather who had been a preacher and a minister for about 40 years. Uh, that was a huge blessing to have my grandfather come down and baptize me. It was pretty sweet. However, I, I, I don't think I really got it. I, I feel like for me, you know, it was kind of just something I did. I kind of entered into the club. It was some, you know, just the kind of undercurrent pressure when you're a kid to, to pray a prayer. I wanted to please parents. I'm a firstborn, so that means I'm a, I'm a parent pleaser. And so I was just kind of doing it. And I remember when I was 13, I went to a, a youth camp up in Washington, and I rededicated my life. And I remember that. And, and, and really nothing changed. Nothing changed. I still was a sinner. I still would try really hard to do the right thing, and then I'd fail, and then I'd repent, and then I'd try again, and then I'd fail, and then I'd repent, and that was kind of my life. That happened after I went off to school at George Fox University, Go Bruins, um, and then I went to seminary. We didn't have a mascot. Maybe, I don't know what a mascot would have been, but we went to, I went to seminary, and even in seminary, I was still on that, that treadmill or that gerbil wheel. You know, and I was just kind of going in circles. I would, I would do something dumb, I'd repent, and then I'd try really hard, and then I'd do something dumb, and I'd repent. And not until I was in my late 20s, when I was working with two other men who were both younger than me at the time, that I really got the gospel. And by God's grace, I had these two men who had themselves became believers later in life, who actually really understood that. And what it was, was it was this idea of the gospel's not try harder, the gospel is die 
It's die harder. You need to die to your old self and the fact that you can do anything to save yourself. And I, I knew that. It was all up here, but it wasn't in how I lived out my life. And so I really came to a point where I really, for me, I really grabbed a hold of that. And it was where I daily was, every day was in the gospel. And what, what happened, like any typical 20-year-old, I knew everything, of course, and, and I, I said, why didn't they teach that to me when I was in kids' church or when I was in big church or in, in college or in seminary? And the problem was, was that for the most part, they did. I just didn't get it. I didn't hear it. When I heard gospel, I heard that's my entrance exam to become a believer, right? It's the little card you fill out to join a club, and then you never show up. You never do anything with the club. That was me, and maybe that's some of you here. But honestly, they taught it. They taught what the gospel was. Now, some of them maybe didn't get it, and they were just doing works to try to make themselves right with God, but a lot of them did get it. And I learned this lesson as a teacher. Um, as a teacher, I would hear students all the time say, we never covered this in class. And in my head, I would, I would answer myself and go, yes, we did. You weren't listening, which is kind of the mantra of a high school teacher because a lot of times you spend talking and they do a lot of times not listening. And unfortunately, that's what had happened to me. I had spent all this time in church and I had, I mean, I didn't miss a Sunday. We even went to church when we went to Hawaii. That's our family. We sat in this gorgeous church in Hawaii, sitting there with birds hopping through because the windows were all open because we couldn't miss church because that's what made us right with God. We couldn't miss youth group because that's what made us right. We had to make sure we were there. And unfortunately, that's not the gospel. That's not it. The gospel is not work to save yourself. It's you are saved, and then actions come from that. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. So our, our big idea, I always like to have a big idea, something for you to write down. And I just want you to know, especially at the end of this sermon today, there's going to be a lot of stuff on the screen. Don't worry about writing it all down. This is kind of the first pass. We're going to do it a second time next week, more depth. And I can always send you my notes, okay? So just listen. If you want to take notes, great. If you don't, we are live streaming, and this will be on there. I can even send you my notes, and you'll see how bad of grammar I have. Poor grammar? Uh, bad grammar? I'm not sure. I have it, though. And uh, it'll be in my, my notes for you to look at. So here's our main idea. Believing the gospel produces rest. Believing the gospel, having faith in the gospel, produces rest. Augustine said it best. He said, God has made us for himself, and we are restless until we find rest in him. And, and really, that, that's the truth that we have. We're restless. We're trying all these ways to get to God, but in actuality, God came to us and wants to provide that rest from the striving. So, obviously, we, we talk about the gospel is, or the gospel believing. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the story of God's work in the world that finds its best expression in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And really, this is the picture of what we're going to look at every single week. That is the main story of the Bible. Yes, when you're in your daily Bible reading and you're slogging through Leviticus or all those names in First Chronicles, or when you're going, I have no idea what's going on with this Hosea guy and marrying a prostitute. What's the deal? All of that is pointing to Christ. 
and it's actually our lack of getting it that's the problem. It's not that the Bible's got these random stories. There's a big storyline, and it is the gospel. It is that Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again. And that's the main point. So this is where we're working from, and we'll be continuing with this. So as we look at this, I've already defined gospel. Now what is rest? What does it mean to rest? You know, when our founding fathers, when early on in the United States, they couldn't decide whether the Sabbath was Saturday or Sunday, so like any pragmatic American, they did both. So we have two days off, just to hedge our bets in case it was changed or it wasn't changed, we take two days off. Many of us look forward to rest, we look forward to that, but that's not what is being talked about here. This is not talking about Sabbath. So I'm not going to be up here scolding you all for working on Sunday or Saturday. That's not what this passage is about. And that's not the rest that's promised here. The rest that's promised here is from the trying to save yourself and make yourself right with God. You see, in the beginning of Genesis, the gospel is clear. And everybody goes, oh yeah, I know. It's it's when Adam and Eve fell and it says that the the serpent's head's going to be crushed. That's Jesus. Yeah, that's Genesis 3. But there's actually the gospel from the first few words of Genesis all the way through Genesis 2. And we see three pictures of the gospel at the beginning of the Bible. The first one is when God says, let there be light. That's the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says the gospel is light. And so we see this picture early on of the gospel. We also see the gospel in Genesis when marriage is instituted by God. Ephesians 5 says that marriage is a picture of the gospel. But the third one, and this is the one that that people don't always see, is what happens in Genesis 2-2 when God enters his Sabbath rest. That's a picture of the gospel. And that's what this Hebrews passage is making clear today, is that entering God's rest is the stopping trying to solve your salvation problem yourself. It's trying to make things right with you and God. And you've heard people say that. Oh, they got right with God. Or, oh, they need to be made right with God. Or something along those lines. In actuality, we can do nothing. All we provide in the equation of our salvation is the sin that Jesus had to die for. We don't provide anything of value. And so we need to be done with the self-effort. We need to be done with the idea of, I have to save myself. I have to do these things to be saved. Instead, it's, I am saved, and so these things come from me. See, all the work that is necessary to bring us to God is done. It is finished. And any activity we participate in comes from knowing that and coming out of that. And that's where we're going we're gonna to camp today. But the author of Hebrews, we don't know who it was, It it might have been a sermon by Paul. It might have been some other of the apostles. We don't know, but it's still God's word, and we we, we trust it, and we look at it. The author of Hebrews kind of jumps around a little bit. So before we walk through the passage, I want to see where rest is in these verses in chronological order. So you'll bear with me a little bit. I love teaching history. But here in these verses, we need to see how he explains rest so that when we look at these passages a little more deeply, we see what he's arguing. So the first thing we see is in Hebrews 4.4, we see that God rests. See, God gets to define what rest actually is, because he made rest. He was the first to rest. And isn't it interesting that the first full day that humans get to spend with God 
is on a day of God's rest. I think there's something there for us there. I think that's part of that picture of the gospel. So this restful, peaceful, sovereign God who has rest and a place of joy, this Sabbath rest, this seventh day rest, verse 9 of chapter 4 of Hebrews brings in that word Sabbath. So how is God resting? What does that mean? Well, first, to rest is to be godlike, because God is the one who defines what rest is. When God rested on the seventh day, he didn't take a break because he was tired. He wasn't whooped. He wasn't, you know, beat down. He wasn't burnt out. Instead, he stopped creating and sat back and started savoring. This idea of rest in God's mind is satisfaction. He's saying, I am satisfied. There's, a, there's this kind of overtone of pleasure that God's going, I am pleased. Look at this. Which for us, when we do that, it's pride. But when God does it, it's glorifying God. God goes, look at what I made. I'm going to sit back and I'm going to enjoy it. See, the Lord never stops working. He was working. It says in the Bible that God holds the universe together. It's not like on the Sabbath. He's like, universe, do your own thing. He didn't do that. Instead, he's still working, but his mindset was, I'm not creating anymore. I am enjoying. See, we get this idea that, that we, we are made for something other than the enjoyment of God. We were made to bring God pleasure. And by bringing God pleasure, we get supreme pleasure. And those two go hand in hand. And that's why he made us, was to glorify himself and to feel that pleasure of his creation. So rest is ultimately not dependent on context, it's dependent on attitude. So that's what we see here at first. The second thing we see is in Hebrews 4, 5, it talks about Israel wandering in the desert. And it says God is promising them a rest in the promised land. This would be the land of Canaan. This is pointing to a time of peace, a time of no more work. Sadly, the Israelites, they didn't enter into the rest, did they? And what they did was they decided to believe untrue things about God and doubt God, and so they didn't enter. Which then the author of Hebrews in verse 8 says, Joshua took them into the land. And this happened in Joshua 21. They were able to go into the promised land and conquer it, and they were there. And it says, but wait, didn't Joshua bring them the rest? And the author of Hebrews says, nope, there was still strife. This is not the rest God promised us. Then back down to verse 7. David, who's writing Psalm 95. This is many, many years after Joshua enters the promised land. And David is a boss. If you have not read what David has done in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, he is a conquering hero. He is the king that everybody wants to be like in Israel. And David says, there's still rest to come. And so David is saying, listen, this, this being in the promised land is not the rest God is promising. So the fifth thing we th see is that in Hebrews 7 and Hebrews 9, the writer of Hebrews says, when can we enter the rest? Today. And as, when, what is this rest? It is the peace with God. See, ultimately, the, 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 we don't have to move to Canaan. We don't have to move to Israel to find the rest. It was just a picture of the rest, of being right with God that we all so desperately need. Because that being right with God, that rest, is our salvation. So, 
Our second main point of the believing in God is that rest is available in Christ. This rest is available. You know, I, I saw a news report yesterday that there were all these new houses, and they were showing some on Lake Tahoe, and they were sitting there looking out over the lake, and it says, all of these houses are now up for rent for this summer, if you can get them. Because everybody's like, we've been stuck in our houses, you know, we've been in lockdown, we're going to go somewhere else and rent an Airbnb or rent a house. And they said they expect this summer to have more people renting than they've ever had. But that's not what this rest is when it comes to God. It's not like, well, you know, I hope you can get in. You know, if you get, if you get in early enough, if you got a coupon. No, this rest is available for all. So here we go. Look at in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So now that word, therefore, that's a connection word. Now, I don't, I don't know how many of you have ever had logic of any sort or anything like that. You've been taught logic. But in, when we talk about logical syllogisms, this is a premise, a premise, and a conclusion. And, and it's, it's a way of thinking that is very much how Paul and the writer of Hebrews like to write. I've kind of given you guys a hint. I think probably Paul probably wrote this, but we can debate that after church if you'd like. But this idea of, therefore, is the author's going, because of what I just said, here is our conclusion. So what did he just say? Well, we have to back up to verse 19 of chapter 3. And he says, so we see that they were unable to enter into rest because of unbelief. So he's talking about the rest that the Israelites were not able to get. And that's where this therefore comes in. He says, therefore, the promise of rest is still there. Let's Fear lest we may not get it. This promise still stands. This rest that God promised to the Israelites, the writer of Hebrews says, still stands, which means, guess what? It still stands for us. It's still something we can enter into. This promised rest is not closed. There still is vacancy. You can still enter into this rest. So as we scroll through this, we're going to look at three F words. And no not those kind of F words, the good kind of F words, okay? So there are three F words we're going to look at. The first one is right there in verse 1. It's the word fear. Fear. Most of the time in the Bible when we see the word fear, it's to don't be afraid, no fear. Don't, you know, the angels always start with that. Fear not, I'm not here to destroy you, right? That's the response. But that's not what we see here. Instead, we are encouraged to fear, We're encouraged to fear. We're encouraged to fear unbelief. Fear that we may miss out on the rest now and the eternal rest to come. That's a crazy thing to think about, right? Like, we fear things. Snakes, spiders, right? Death, loss of loved ones, coronavirus. I mean, we fear things. We fear not trusting in God. But fear is something we avoid at all costs. I mean, that's what a lot of people do. They're so fearful, they, they, they try to mitigate fear and they try to push it out of the way and get away from it at all costs. And what the author is saying is, we have to do that same feeling we have towards those big hairy spiders. That should be how we treat unbelief. We should be so terrified that, I mean, I, you guys know, you know people that are scared of spiders and they're jumping up on tables and they're, is it dead? Is it, you know, and I mean, I, I'm gonna talk about my wife for a second, but I, I I squish a bug, 
And I'm thinking, i got to destroy this thing and get rid of it. I'll throw it in the toilet. She goes, no, it's going to crawl back out. Right? And so she will not use the toilet in our house. She's so fearful of a bug that I definitely squished enough that it's not coming back. But apparently zombie bugs must exist in Katie's world. But that's the fear we're to have here, right? We're supposed to have a fear that it's like, I don't want anything to do with unbelief. I don't want it even close to me. Get it away. Get that away. And that's the fear we're to have. We're to, we're to focus on not unbelieving or to, to believe. We'll turn it into a positive. To believe. To run away from unbelief. The promise is there for us. Not that we have to move, but that it's now. Now look at verse 2 and 3. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter the rest. As he has said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So that first word there, for, is another one of those connecting words. And what this means is he's telling us the reason why we are to fear and and the connection to that fear. And the problem was, was that they heard the good news. And you're going, wait a sec, hold on, Pastor John. That's Old Testament. Jesus hadn't come and died yet. You're right. But the good news was, was that God was merciful and loved them and was going to provide a way into their rest. So that's a picture of Christ. And so Israel was not able to enter in because of their unbelief and because of the fact that they were not willing to believe. They were missing something that led them to not fear their unbelief, which is they were missing faith. They were missing faith. So here's our second F word. It is the word faith. Faith is not knowledge. It's not having brains, uh, ideas of what's going on. It's not magic words. But it's faith. Faith is listening to the truth and having faith in it. See, throughout Hebrews, there's this constant drumbeat. We stay it in verse 12 of chapter 3, that they had an unbelieving heart. Chapter 3, verse 14, they have to hold on to their original confidence. Verse 19, unbelief. Verse 2 of chapter 4, faith. Verse 3, believe. These are all the same words. This idea of faith is something that gets thrown around all the time. Oh, there's people of faith. Our culture says, well, I have faith. Well, what do you have faith in? What you have faith in is what matters, not that you have faith. I have faith that it'll work out all right. Well, how do you know? Well, I have faith. Okay, but in what? Faith must be in something. I was talking to um, a member here at the church, and we were talking about faith this week. And this idea of faith is believing plus action. It's believing something and then acting in accordance. And I took him and I, I told him, I said, I'm going to show you what faith is. And I went and I sat down on a chair. I said, did you see it? And he went, uh, I don't get it. And I went, no, didn't you see it? I'll do it again. I stood up and I sat down on the chair and I said, this is faith. I said, did you see it? And he went, no. I said, well, here's the deal. I believe the chair can hold me up. Is that faith? Well, yeah, but it's not faith until I what? Act upon my belief. And that's really what faith is here because the Israelites, they, they, they knew in their heads that God was for them. But when it came to acting on it, they didn't. They didn't do anything with it. Back when we were in the book of James, back in the winter, 
We, we saw the, the definition of faith is living out certainty that God is real. Not just that God is out there, but the living out certainty. It's responding to who God is with correct actions. Because of who God is tells me who I am, and it puts us in the right response. You know, comparing us and the first century church and Exodus Israel, we all have the same issue. It's are we going to have faith in God and are we going to act upon it? Are we going to fight against unbelief? Are we going to fear unbelief so much that we cleave to our faith even more? One author writes, hearing the good news brought no lasting benefit to the Israelites. It did not ensure the attainment of their goal. Why? Because they did not appropriate the good news by faith when they heard it. The practical implication is clear. It's not the hearing of the gospel that brings salvation. It's the appropriation by faith. That means grabbing a hold of it by faith. And if that faith is genuine, it will be a persistent faith. So the second F, first we had fear the unbelief. And then the second F is we must have faith. We must grab on. We must believe and then act accordingly from our belief. Verse 4, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 4 is that quote we saw earlier from Genesis 2. Verse 5 is from Psalm 95. And again, we see this promise of rest. One of the amazing things about this gospel is that God welcomes us in to his rest. You know, many of us, if, if someone was, was down on their luck and, and, you know, had just recovered from a disease, we'd, we'd give them some money. We may take them a meal. Someone gets out of, of jail, whether they deserve to be there or not. We would maybe give them you know, money or maybe buy a hotel for them. But how many of us would actually bring that person into our house and say, hey, have full run of it? We wouldn't do that. But that's what God did with us. Our sin has big wedge between us and him. Our diseased, sinful hearts have made us contagious. We're in an entirely different area. But God goes, come I'm going to fix you. Come into my rest. Come unto me is what Jesus said. And then in John 14, it says Jesus is just like his heavenly father. So this rest is there for us. Verses 6 and 7 say, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying that through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This quoting of this portion of Psalm 95, we can see that the author of Hebrews says, you, there's urgency, you gotta do this. It's gotta happen right now. We are only guaranteed today. We aren't guaranteed anything tomorrow or the next day. This idea of as long as it's called today means as long as there is not an end to history, we still have a chance. And praise be to God, that means that there are people that we know that are not walking with the Lord. Their story's not done yet. Because God is not, is not here yet. He is slow. He doesn't want any to perish. But we see the faith and the fear in these sections. Four separate times it talks about missing out because of unbelief. And then three times it says, believe, believe, believe. Hebrews is repeating itself for us to go, don't be one of those unbelievers. Be one of the believers. 
Now again in verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did. This true rest did not happen with Joshua and Moses and David. Instead, it's a future one. This promise of entering rest means that our spiritual strivings are done. God has completed it. We can rest in it. So, so far, we've got this rest is available for us in Christ because of Christ. Rest is available to us in Christ because of Christ. See, faith is not about doing. Many times when we talk about faith, and we've heard things like faith-based this or faith-based that, and we see all this idea of faith is going out and doing something. No, faith is resting. Faith is resting in God. Because ultimately, we can't grasp this rest. Just like we can't grasp the salvation, instead we must relax and rest in it. Unless it's given to us, we will die without it. We have to anchor our biblical rest in who God is and his character. Real rest in God should excite in us activity. Remember, God didn't stop working because he was resting. Instead, he had the satisfaction of, I've got it done, but I'm still working. Same thing goes for us. Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's a stopping and resting. He's eating. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him and then finds his safety in him. The most rest-filled people are those who are relentlessly pursuing God to find their rest. This is the gospel. Is it real or is it something that you believe to join a club? So stop your futile search for rest in the things of this world, a vacation, a weekend, a relationship, a status, a job, a car, a retirement is not rest. It's a pale representation of the rest we are to have in God. And the awesome part about it is the rest we experience now is the rest we're going to experience for all of eternity. It's not going to be you know, vacations at the beach for all of eternity. It's relationship with God for all of eternity. Now, there's going to be some awesome stuff there. I believe it's going to be a physical place on the, new, on the new earth. But that's not the selling point of heaven. The selling point of heaven is being with God. Just like on the seventh day when he rested with his highest of creation, his humans. That's what he wants with us. So the last verse, let us therefore strive to enter the rest so that none may fall by the same sort of obedience. I didn't forget about the third F word. Here it is, fight, fight. Fear the unbelief, put faith in God, and then fight. It says strive to enter. This is important because this is where we get it wrong a lot of times, is we think that the striving to enter means I have to do things to become right with God. That is not the point. The point is we are saved and now we are going to strive to get closer and closer to that rest. Not to make me right with God, but because I'm right with God. See, that's a big difference. We're not striving to get into the company. We're in the company and we're striving to make it go. Strive to taste the true and living God. Finding our rest in depths of God. You'll have to work at this. Our world is 100% against this. Your flesh is 100% against this. Maybe even some people in this church, you will fight against this with each other. But this entering into the rest of promised rest 
is there for each of us. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't point out that this sounds like it contradicts verse 3. Is there a contradiction between 11 and 3? Is it, because in one it says believe, and then this one it says strive. Well, the rest we have in Christ is only the first fruits of the ultimate rest. But the grammar in verse 3 allows us to see this. The actual literal translation would be, we who are believing are entering into God's rest. So it's this idea of we're starting into the rest now, and we're going to strive to finish the rest. And isn't that a picture of the Christian life? We start the Christian life, and whether you make a profession of faith, whether you, you say these certain words, or if it's a more of a, a slow thing, or maybe, maybe you're sitting on a toilet and, and Jesus comes and visits you, like somebody here at this church had happened to him, right? And, and you're sitting there, and you're, you're in. You're on the path. You have to strive to stay on the path, and that striving is not, i got to work to be right with God. It's, I'm right with God, and I want to work to be closer, because the closer I am to him, the safer I feel and the more I rest. So what does this all mean? It means salvation is not through striving. It's not through our resting. It's through God's work, his striving, and our resting in him, his rest. So we have to do something. We have to strive. What does this striving look like? What does it mean? Well, the Bible's great about this. It doesn't just leave us hanging. It tells us how not to do it, and it tells us how to do it. How not to do it is with the mindset of, I'm going to make myself right with God. I'm going to earn my salvation. That's the wrong way. And the Bible's clear on that throughout. But on the other side, it tells us what we must do to strive and understand and be right and rest with God. And when we, when we talk about this, it's the idea of preaching to yourself. Preaching to yourself. See, every single one of you has two preachers for sure, maybe more. You got this guy up here who preaches at you for 35, maybe 40 minutes on a Sunday. But then there's one more preacher that everybody's listening to. And no, it's not John MacArthur. It's not Charles Stanley. It's not Alistair Begg, right? It's none of those guys. It's you. You preach to yourself way more than I ever get to. You preach to yourself even more than your spouse or your children or an employer does. We are constantly preaching to ourselves. Every single day. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a doctor, medical doctor who became a preacher, said this. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you first thing in the morning. You've not originated them, but they are talking to you, and they're bringing up yesterday's problems, yesterday's issues, today's problems. Somebody's talking, but who is it that's talking? Yourself is talking to you. And, and this idea here is what we see right with Israel. So Israel is standing outside of the promised land, and they, 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 they're told, you can enter in, and they start going in their own minds and going, no, I don't think we can. Yeah, you know, ah, God isn't like that, and he didn't do this. And he, they started preaching to themselves, and then they started preaching to each other. We're going to talk about that in a few more weeks, about how to preach to each other. But right now, it's about you. They were preaching to themselves. See, the Bible is clear on this. We need help. We have to have help to remember because so many times we preach to ourselves a false gospel. We preach that God doesn't love us. God is not all-powerful. God doesn't care instead of preaching the truth that God is all-powerful. God is love, and God does care. See, in the Bible, over 420 times it says remember. 
And that's just that word. There's other words that mean the same thing. You know the song, Come Thou Fount, where it says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, right? That's not the guy from the, the Sleepy Hollow, right? The, the, it's, Ebenezer is a pile of rocks, which doesn't sound like much, but if you think about it in Israel's time, that was as good as a monument. It was remember. And if you've read your Old Testament, and I know you have, they made piles of rocks all over the place saying, remember, this is what God did here. They even did one in the middle of the Jordan River. So the river's dammed up and they walk across and then they go, oh, we better make a pile of rocks to remember it. So they put a pile of rocks in the middle of the Jordan River. See, we need to be reminded. And praise be to God, that's the job of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is there to help us remember. See, we will meditate on something. We will meditate on the news we've heard. We'll meditate on our failures. We'll meditate on the things we've messed up. We'll meditate on future anxiety instead of going to what the Spirit is pointing us to, which is meditating on God. Now, I want you not to take my word for it. Psalm 42, we see a picture of this. In Psalm 42, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the psalmist talking to himself. Not only know if he did it out loud and people could see him and thought he was a little nuts, but what he was doing was he was saying, I need to be reminded of God's truth. It's not enough to come on Sunday and have Pastor John teach it. We need it inside of us. We need to preach to ourselves God's truth. Lamentations 3.17 says, I have forgotten what happiness is, so I say my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. And the one that everybody's familiar with in Lamentations 3.21 and 24, though he felt he had no hope, he says, but this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Apostle Paul agrees with this in 2 Corinthians. He says, take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. See, we've got all sorts of things in us, and especially our own voice inside saying, you're never going to be good enough. You're never going to be able to do it. You are a failure. You are a mess. God doesn't love you. It's speaking lies. It's our flesh rebelling against God. And so we must take hold of truth, and through the Holy Spirit reminding us of that, we let that truth build into a tree. Martin Lloyd-Jones again says, you must take yourself by the hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you downcast? What business do you have to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself. You must upbraid yourself. You must condemn, exhort, and say, hope in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who he is, what he has done, and who you are in Christ. Now this is not some magic mantra that we just repeat over and over again. It's not hocus pocus. Instead, it's taking the truth of God's word that is implanted in you by the Spirit and your own personal study time and your Bible study time and your life group time and your every single moment that you spend in God's word so that he can bring it back out and that preaching goes from false gospel to true gospel. So this is the structure that our, the Holy Spirit uses. 
He starts with who God is. That's the bedrock. That's the root of this tree, if you will. Is it starts with who God is. And if we get that right, the tree only gets stronger. Second one is, what has God done? And then the third, these are the branches that will bear fruit. Who am I because of what God's done? Who am I in Christ? So if you imagine that tree, and we're going to continue to use that analogy as we move forward, you see that the fruit of the Spirit comes out of those branches that come from who you are in Christ. And it just grows because ultimately we have lies coming at us. We're being bombarded by lies. And no, it's not just the media. And no, it's not social media. And no, it's not a friend down the street. It's from inside of us. We want to believe those lies. And so we must preach this gospel. So I'm going to give you an example of this. We're going to do this over and over again. You're going to be tired of it by the time we're done, but hopefully it'll stick. So let's say you fail. You messed up. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's just human foilability, right? We messed up. So what should we remind ourselves about who God is? We remind ourselves that God is perfect. He's the exact opposite of us. He doesn't make mistakes. Second, what has he done? He sent Jesus to live in my place perfectly. So what does that mean for me? It means I am righteous in his eyes. My life is not identified with imperfection. My life is not identified with my failure. My life is not defined by my failure. Instead, it's defined by Christ who was sent by a perfect God to be in my place. See, that, that's preaching the gospel to yourself. It starts with who God is, what he's done, and who I am in light of it. And then the fruit of the Spirit just blooms like crazy. So let's go back to Israel. Remember, they're standing outside of the, like the promised land. What, what were they believing? Well, first, who God is. Well, who was God to them? Well, God was someone who was not in control. Remember, they, the, the spies came back. Ten of them said, there's giants in the land. Ah. And the other the two, the two spies, Joshua was one of them, says, no, it's great. God's going to get it. Joshua didn't go. There weren't giants in the land. He said, no, God's bigger, right? So their first mistake was that they didn't remember who God was, which led to the second mistake, which was God has not taken care of us. So the third mistake, we'll have to do it all ourselves. And then look at the fruit. Doubt, anger, fear, cowardice, thinking they were going to fail. There's no way we can conquer the promised land. God's going, yeah, you're right. That's why I'm going to do it. See, the Israelites should have done this rightly, and they, they, they started in the wrong spot, and it got them to the wrong spot. They should have started with, God is all good and all powerful. He is that, all good, all powerful. What has God done? They had forgotten. They'd been wandering in the desert. Did they want for anything? Yeah, maybe they didn't have a feathered down bed and air conditioning, but they were in the desert. They had all the food they wanted. They had all the water they needed, and God was protecting them. It says their clothes, their shoes didn't wear out. Man, 40 years of shoes lasting. I would love that as a parent of three kids. So they had all of this that God had done for them, but they'd forgotten it. And then the third thing they should have remembered is, we are his chosen children, so he's going to care for us. And then the fruit of that, the result is trust in God, peace, freedom from worry. That's the rest that's promised us when we get it in the right order. 
See, this is different than just reminding us, you know, oh yeah, God's in control, kind of just doing that. No, this is actually talking to yourself and going, no, not only is God in control, but look at what he's already done and look at who I am, therefore I have hope. Therefore I have strength, therefore I have courage. If we skip over two, we miss the point here. If we skip over what God has done and we just say God is good and I'm loved, we miss the gospel. And that's where I was for the first 20 plus years of my life. I knew there was a God and I knew that he kind of liked me, but I'd forgotten what he'd done. So when sin came forward, when, when my identity issues came forward, when depression, anxiety, when fear came forward, the wrong kind of fear, I didn't have that remembrance of what he'd done right there. And I'd forgotten it. Not because my teachers didn't teach it, but because I wasn't paying attention. So get this. This is what drives us. And then that number three on that list of who we are in Christ, that's what we talked about last week where we said all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. They apply to you. How Jesus is loved by God is how he loves you because of Christ. So what do we need to preach to ourselves based on this passage this week? First one, who is God? God is at rest. What is God like? He's at rest. He is savoring. He is totally satisfied in his creation. What has he done? He's provided Christ as the means by which we can enter his rest. Christ has come. He's solved the rest problem. Thirdly, who are we in Christ? We are in Christ completely right and able to enter into God's rest. We are made right. Remember, righteousness means rightness with God. We are now able, we are seen as righteous in God's eyes. We can enter into his rest. The, 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 the stuff in the way has been moved. The, the valley has been bridged. The wedge has been taken out. And that leads to our response. And our response is rest in that. Rest in that. Recognizing that your salvation is assured if you're in Christ. And rest in that. And then from that, strive to run away from your unbelief. Putting your faith in him more and more. And when those thoughts come up, those, those unfruits of the spirit, those things that come out that are not a part of the faith, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, and self-control, when those opposites come out of those, we begin with, who is God? What has he done? And who am I in Christ? And the fruit of the spirit follows. So what does that look like for us right now? Two things. One, we need to remember this order. We need to remember where this goes. And then right now, if you're not in those moments of doubt, you need to pray and ask the Spirit to start reverting how you do it. Reverting from believing a lie about God that leads to all of that fruit. Instead, believe the truth. The Spirit will do it. The Spirit's job is to point to Jesus. The Spirit's job is to point us to truth. So today, as we finish, God is at rest. He sent Christ so we can be a part of his rest. So now, rest in who he is. We are his chosen children. Rest in that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you, you've done all the heavy lifting. You've done all the work. And we receive all the benefit. Lord, thank you for coming and dying in our place. 
so that we could be made right with the Father. And Father, thank you for seeing us and loving us and caring for us so much that you would send Christ to die on our behalf. And Spirit, I pray that you would guide us to your truth in all that we do. Lord, when we wake up tomorrow or maybe even as we're driving home tonight and we are, we are thinking of things and, and, and having thoughts come through our mind, help us to be able to preach to ourselves that you are the God of the universe and the truth about you and what you've done and who we are because of what you've done. And I pray for that fruit to just grow up in us, Lord. Look forward to what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.